I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at verses 10 through 12. Today, we're looking at verses 13 through 16. We're rapidly moving, as you can tell, through the book of 1 Peter. But I hope you will not be disappointed with what the Lord has for us this morning. His Word is so rich, isn't it? There's so much about Him. He's the focal point, but there's a lot for us, too. Adolf Eichmann was Hitler's mastermind regarding the final solution. That meaning the elimination of all Jews, not just in Europe. Ultimately, Hitler had a commitment to eliminate every Jew from the face of the earth. Eichmann was the one who was leading the charge. He was the tip of the spear for this endeavor. When Germany invaded Hungary in 1944, there were 725,000 Jews in that small nation. By the time the war ended in 1945, 437,000 of them had been exterminated. Somehow or another, Eichmann escaped any kind of prosecution right after the war. When things began to heat up for him, he took his family to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and assumed another name while he was there. It was there in 1960 that the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, found him, captured him, and finally returned him to trial in 1961 in Israel. Among those who testified against him was a Polish Jew by the name of Yehiel Dinur. Mr. Dinur had spent two years in Auschwitz under the evil eye of Eichmann and his henchmen. He was a writer, a poet, and after he had finished his testimony, he literally collapsed as he fainted in that room where he had been giving testimony. Not too long after that, Mike Wallace, the CBS newsman, was interviewing him, asking him, why was it that you collapsed there in that courtroom? Was it because of fear? Was it because of hatred? Was it because that moment brought up so many horrid memories in your mind? And Mr. Denure responded surprisingly with these words, no. None of those things. All at once, I realized that Adolf Eichmann wasn't the godlike army officer who had sent many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am, and then he paused for a moment, exactly like him. It reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:10 by the grace of God I am what I am and this was echoed in a little bit different way by John Bradford as he was facing potential death and finally went to the stake and was burned for his faith in Christ in 1555 he said there but for the grace of God go I this man understood that lurking in his heart was the same capability not to do atrocities to the degree, perhaps, that Eichmann 
executed his atrocities. But still there was within him this evil, treacherous, lurking, sinful man. When we read a statement such as we read earlier in verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our awareness of our own capability to do evil things makes us see God's command to be holy as intimidating and seemingly impossible. Yet, we know the Bible speaks of this more than one time. Three times in the book of Leviticus, we are told that we are to be holy as He is holy. Are we to conclude from this command to be holy as God is holy? That God expects us in this lifetime to become perfect, as perfect as He is? Well, He challenges us to grow in Christ's likeness. But the uniform testimony of the Bible is nobody reaches the place of sinless perfection in this life. And to suggest that we have to strive to be exactly like God in order to be in right standing with God smacks of works righteousness. And certainly it is works righteousness. We are made right with God one way and one way only. It's through the work of Jesus Christ when He died on the cross and became the propitiation for our sin, taking the full weight of God's wrath upon Himself for your sin and for my sin. What we know is that God... When we receive Christ, remember what we've learned so far about who we are in Christ from Peter in 1 Peter? He says early in this chapter, in the opening words of the book, he says, God caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ is alive and therefore you have the capacity to be made alive in Christ Therefore, Christ comes and lives in you. If you know Jesus, He indwells you by His Spirit. And if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, the Bible is very clear, you do not belong to Christ. You must be born again, Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you have been born again by the living and abiding Word of God, then the presence of Christ is real in you. And His presence in you equips you to grow in holiness. Anytime God puts a desire in you or me to be holy, we have the capacity to be holy. Because not only has He placed that desire in you, if you have such a desire, but He provides the power for you and me to grow in holiness. God never commands you to do anything without giving you the equipment to do that. So, it's up to us to understand how to activate, as it were, that power that God has placed in our hearts. I want to talk a moment about holiness. Before I do, however, I want to draw your attention once more to verse 16. The first statement that's quoted from the book of Leviticus, you shall be holy. The word translated be is not the normal word that is used for this verb of being In the New Testament. Actually, the word is become. So what God is really saying to us is, you shall become holy. That seems to me to indicate, I'm on solid ground, I believe, when I suggest to you, 
that we are in a process of becoming more holy, more like God. We can count on what God says in His Word in every context, but certainly when God says that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, He had you and me in mind. And also God says in Romans chapter 8 that the purpose for which you were born again by the living and abiding Word is so that you could be conformed to the image of Jesus. God's plan is for you and for me to become like Christ. This is great news for us, and we know He's the one who is about it. This holiness is not a reactive holiness. And what do I mean by that? I mean, it's not a situational holiness. Have you ever been caught in a situation where you felt like you needed to be holy? Have you ever had that happen to you? It reminds me of a story I was told about a pastor who went to visit a woman in his church. He arrived. She greeted him joyfully. She and her little girl were there. And as they chatted and came to the conclusion of the conversation, the pastor said, Would it be okay with you if I read the Word of God and prayed with you? She said, Of course, Pastor. And he said, I left my Bible in the car. Do you have your Bible around somewhere from which I can read? Yes, I do, Pastor. And she turned to her daughter and said, Honey, go get Mommy's favorite book and bring it into the room. Well, she did. And she brought a Sears catalog in when she came in the room. That's what I would call reactionary or reactional holiness. It was a situational deal, wasn't it? That's not the kind of holiness that we're to exercise. Many of us try to exercise that. Even on Sunday when we come here, we act differently when we're here than we act somewhere else. Isn't that interesting? Well, that could be the influence of the Spirit of God here. I would hope that would be a part of it. But it's really a reflection of our not really understanding what holiness is about. It's something that's to be a part of our lives all the time. The word in the Old Testament for holiness is the word kadesh. This word means literally to cut. The idea of cutting something in two. That's the idea. And then it came to mean those things which were separated. And actually the New Testament word hagios is a word which follows in that line of thinking because the word means consecrated or set apart. Set apart for a special purpose. Taken out of that which is common and put into that which is extraordinary. That's who you are if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. God chose you in Christ before the creation of the world for the purpose of being holy. The word holy is a word which means set apart for God's use. That's the only reason you and I are here today. Not in this building, but in this world. God has set us apart to be holy. He's taken that which is ordinary and transformed it into the extraordinary in you and me by indwelling us by His Spirit. The temple of Solomon and the post-exilic temple, those temples in Jerusalem, magnificent, among the wonders of the world, beautiful, full of decor, gold, gilded, Do you know the thing that made that temple sanctified or holy? It was sanctified and holy. 
It's because God caused it to be that way. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why is the Sabbath day different from the other six days of the week? Because God said so. God set it apart. Why are you and I, if we're followers of Christ, why are we holy? It's because God has set us apart. We are no longer ordinary. We are extraordinary because of God's having chosen us by the sanctifying work of His Spirit to be holy. Jesus dares you and me to be different. I suggested that a good title of this series of messages would be Dare to be an Alien because this is the way in which we are described in the book of Peter and not just in the book of Peter, elsewhere in the Bible also. Dare to be different. We're to be different than the religious people in the world. We're to be different from those people who are just out and out secularists. We're to be different. We're to be like the Lord Himself as we grow in His image. What is necessary to live a holy life? Now we're going to give our attention fully to the text. And there are three answers to the question, what is necessary to live a holy life coming out of these verses which we're considering together at the moment. The first is, to live a holy life, we must live a life of urgent duty. There is obligation for us in this matter of holiness And this requires steadfast hope. Look at verse 13. Therefore, and you're well aware, whenever you run across this word, therefore, in Scripture, it points us back to what has just occurred in the previous verses, from verses 3 through 12. Paul talks about this great, Peter rather, talks about this great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Phenomenal. And when we think about this and we allow all the things that are true of us that are spelled out for us in verses 3 through 12, it resolves itself in our wanting to be holy like God. Therefore, gird your minds for actions, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope. One word translated by those three words in our English translation. It's the only full-fledged verb in this verse. The other two, gird your minds for action and keep sober, those words are actually modifying verbals, explaining what the support of this fixing our hope is all about. And what does hope mean? Remember what hope means? Hope is not wishful thinking. Rather, it's the expectance, reliance on what God has promised us. God is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should repent. Has He promised and will He not do it? God's nature makes it impossible for Him not to fulfill His promises to us in His Word. So we need to learn what His nature is. We need to learn where His promises are. We need to cling tenaciously to His nature and to Him and to His Word And we have hope, a hope that is not conditioned by circumstances. It's an act of the will. It's not something that's emotional. How can I say that? Well, we're commanded to fix our hope. Can you command a feeling? If I were to command you to be happy right now, could you be happy? No. We can choose, however, to obey God. And remember, if God commands me to do something, He gives me the capacity to do it. If He commands me to set my hope completely 
on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, I can do it. I can't do it in my own power, but I can do it in His power. He has given me the power by the Spirit's presence in my life to obey Him. The way in which this command is given would suggest from the grammar of the New Testament that there's a call in this fixing our hope upon the grace that's set before us as being a decisive adoption of a new attitude. These to whom this was first written had not been practicing setting their hope on the grace that lay ahead, that was laid up for them. They had yet to do it. And Peter is calling them by the Spirit of God to do that. Maybe you're here today and you're flagging in your hope. You don't have this kind of steadfast hope. Well, it's yours for the taking because of what God has promised us in His Word. And we're to set our hope completely. This is the only time in the whole Bible the word which is translated completely here in our text is used. And it carries with it the idea of a demand by God for Christian hope. And that demand is not to be less than complete. It cannot be half-hearted. In the book of Second Chronicles chapter 25, one of the kings of Judah is described this way. Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of God, but not wholeheartedly. We cannot be holy unless we desire to be wholeheartedly, unless we respond to the initiatory practice of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's He who motivates us and moves us in this direction. That's key to our understanding this whole passage of Scripture and really the Christian life. The focus of this hope? Well, look again. At verse 13, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have seen this phrase once more, once before rather, in verse 7 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ speaking of the second coming of Christ. Paul describes it in the book of Titus as the blessed hope. That's our hope. It's the second coming of Christ. At that time, we will be completely redeemed. We will be totally holy. We will be like Him when we see Him. Not just our spirits, not just our souls, but our bodies will be like that of Jesus Christ when Christ comes. It's something for us to eagerly anticipate. And that promise is that which enables us to deal with all the difficulties in this life. If we understand that the coming of Christ is more sure than anything else we know, even our own deaths, we know that's appointed unto man once to die. We know death is coming for us unless Christ comes again. If He comes before we die, praise God, we won't have to die. But Christ's coming is the most sure thing that we know as far as our lives are concerned. There are supports for this hope. We looked at them in passing as we read the first part of verse 13. The first of which is, gird your minds for action. Now, Help me with this for just a moment. The word translated girds is a word which was used in Jesus' day and throughout the Orient, even to this day to some extent, where men wearing long robes, when they were ready to really high-step it, what they would do, they would reach down, get the hem of their garment, pull it up, and they had a belt around their waist called a girdle, they would call it, and stick it on there, and then they could run. Paul borrowed this metaphor when he was talking about 
the full armor of God. Right? The breastplate of righteousness was one thing, but girding your loins also with truth. Understand this, that God is giving us this call to gird our minds. He's mixing his metaphors, I know here. But what he's doing, he says, gird your minds. The word mind, listen carefully, literally means through thought is what the word really means. So it's the idea of a thought process, a process of thinking. The Christian life requires thought. It's not simply an intellectual endeavor. However, if we eliminate the intellectual in favor of the emotional or the volitional, we'll be in trouble every time. Because loose thinking leads to loose living. The converse of that is true. Right thinking, and when I say right thinking, I'm talking about thinking the thoughts of God after Him as revealed in His Word. We have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. And it's stored for us in His Word. But if we are men and women who are committed to this matter of girding up our minds, thinking the thoughts of God after Him, that requires us to be sober. Because this word sober, it's a continual tense kind of verb, always being sober. It simply means be level-headed. The way we can be level-headed is to gird our minds for action. To have our minds focused in the right direction. So, what we need to see here. The first thing that's necessary to live a holy life is for you and me to live a life of urgent duty. This is emphasized in the word, gird your minds. It calls for decisive action, preparing for a course of activity, a strenuous life of obedience. There's nothing more difficult than obeying God if you don't have the power to do it. Would you agree? Some of you here this morning have struggled and you struggled and you struggled with some besetting sin and you're just tired of it. You can't do it anymore. You say, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I give up. The Lord's been waiting for you to reach that place, by the way. Because He says, you can't do it, but I can do it for you. You simply have to put your hope in Me and trust Me. And I will give you that power. The second thing that's necessary for us to live a holy life is to abandon our pre-Christian lifestyles. We must put our former lives in the rearview mirror, our habits, those things which ruled us. Remember what the Bible says in Romans 6, where Paul says, Stop letting sin rule in your mortal body. Quit going on presenting the members of your body, my hands, my eyes, my ears, parts of my body, to sin as instruments. The word instrument literally means weapons of unrighteousness. I can stop it. God's commanded it. I must stop it. And in so doing, I put that lifestyle behind me. It doesn't happen overnight. Remember, holiness is a process. It takes the first step, however, in dependence upon the Lord. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, Peter was being so tender with these people because we know they were not fully obedient, but they were obedient. They were on the pathway, weren't they? Because of the presence of God in their lives. Later in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about how they had been 
indwelled by God, and he had imparted his divine nature to them based on the promises of God which they had claimed. So God has given us his nature in the person of the Spirit of God. And we can put these things behind us one by one, gradually, step by step. He goes on to say in verse 14, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. The word translated conformed conveys the idea of being forced into a mold and taking the shape of the mold. It's like an amorphous sort of existence. And this is the way we were before we knew Christ. We were incapable of reflecting the image of Christ because we were under the control of the evil one. The Bible says the whole world lies under the control of the evil one, namely the devil. The world system is controlled by Satan. But God, through Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His Son and His kingdom, the kingdom of God. So no longer are we sort of like a big glob of jelly or jello or an amoeba because we're being made more and more into the image of Christ. To be conformed carries with it also the idea of being superficial and always in a state of change. Isn't it true that people who don't know Christ, don't know Christ, and maybe this was your testimony before you knew Christ, were you always changing, looking for something to fulfill you? Another relationship, another job, another home. Looking for something, thinking, if I just get this, if I just have that, the result will be, I'll be fulfilled. Well, that's an indication that a person is not in Christ. The word translated lusts is the strong word for desire. It's really a neutral word in the New Testament. In fact, it's used more often positively than negatively. I was surprised as I prepared the message to make that discovery. And this describes a lifestyle of disobedience. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, the Bible tells us that we were children of disobedience before we were set apart by God for His purpose. And this lust, or this former lust, is done and expressed in our ignorance. People who don't know Christ, we say they know better, they should know better, but in a sense they don't know better. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the Bible says that the natural man, the man outside of Christ, the woman outside of Christ, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him or her because they are spiritually appraised. People can't understand. They are guilty because they have a sinful nature. They are responsible for their sin, but they can't figure it out because they have not heard the gospel yet. If they've heard it, the Spirit of God has not opened their eyes to it. It's a lifestyle of self-indulgence. But notice again the way in which Peter introduces this verse. As obedient children, we are without excuse when we go back to our former lifestyle. Before we came to Christ, there is no excuse because why? The Spirit of God lives in us. Jesus lives in us. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, the person who is born of God will not continue to sin. That means have a lifestyle of sin. The grammar there would suggest that. We do sin. If we confess our sin and repent of it, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But we must be people who understand that we are without excuse. We've got to quit being conformed to our pre-Christian lifestyle. Here's the third answer to the question. What is necessary for us to live a holy life? We're to be transformed into the likeness of God. That's what this is all about, isn't it? You shall be holy, for I'm holy. Look at 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now, that's a bit daunting. In all my behavior? Lord, I'm trying to be holy here for an hour and a half at church. You mean all my behavior? Yes, he says. And the way in which this is constructed would suggest that's exactly what God has in mind, Peter had in mind. In every area of my life, I'm to be holy. Please understand, there's no such thing in Scripture as that which is sacred versus that which is secular. Every ordinary activity has the capacity to become holy. Even eating and drinking, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10:31. Something as mundane as that. There is no greater demand on me as a preacher behind the pulpit than was on my father, the trucker, behind the wheel as he logged hundreds and thousands, if not millions of miles. My father was a man who was born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Not a perfect man by any means, but a man who understood who he was in Christ. He understood why he was here. He understood he'd been set apart for God's use as a truck driver. A ninth grade education set apart by God's use to drive a truck. And on the way, he interacted with no telling how many hundreds, if not thousands of people that God allowed him to share some witness with over the 43 years of his career. Please understand, it does not matter what your job is as long as it's an ethical job. It's not an immoral job. It's not a job that's characterized by illegality. Your job is your place of ministry. I hope you understand this is God has set you apart for that job. And He has given it to you not just to make a living, but to lay up treasures in heaven. And guess what those ultimate treasures are? People that God touches through you. I love the fact that our way of life has the great capacity as we are salt and light in this world to serve as incentives for others who do not know Jesus to believe. You know, the world is full of lost people. In part, it's because so few of us who know Him have cared enough about them and not cared so much about ourselves that we have failed to witness to people about Jesus. What I find over and over again when I feel a reluctance to bear witness to somebody, what I discover so often, more often than not, that people are receptive, not because they know I'm a preacher. I'm just an average Joe out there doing what I'm doing at Walmart or Cracker Barrel or wherever I am. And then the Lord prompts me to share a witness with some people. And I say, oh, no, Lord, not she won't be interested. He won't be interested. I've only got a minute. They're not going to receive anything I have to say. They'll think I'm intruding upon them. Everything in our culture would yell at us, don't talk to us about Christ. Don't talk to us about Christ. But you know what I see? Is that the Spirit of God goes before us if we want to be used by the Lord to share Christ with somebody. The Spirit of God's already witnessed to those people before we ever open our mouths. We have too high opinion of ourselves. We think it all depends on us. It depends on Him. 
So just try it. Just stumble and fumble your way through it the next time you have any inclination to talk about Jesus to anybody. Just blurt it out and see what happens. You might get knocked out, but it's okay. <laughs> Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me, Jesus says. So you're blessed if you get punched out. It's all right. In 2 Corinthians 2, with this thought in mind, Paul says, Thanks be to God who manifests, manifests through us the sweet, listen to this, this is awesome, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Every place. Everywhere Paul and his cohorts went that have the fragrance of Christ. Look, if we're holy, we're going to reek of Christ. Now, that'll be a turnoff to some people because Jesus says, the world hated me, they'll hate you too. But there'll be so many more who will be challenged to know Him through you. Why is this imitation of God necessary? As the Bible said, as we've seen, as beloved children imitate God. Because God wants us to be like Him. Is He on an ego trip or something? Wanting us to be like Him? No. He has a passion for His family. Don't you want your family to be like you in a way? Don't you have some standards for your family? Don't you have some traditions in your family? God wants us to be like Him. And we cannot be like Him until we become more holy. He wants to have fellowship with us. And what fellowship does darkness have with light? Sinfulness, lack of holiness is darkness. Holiness is light. So the Lord wants our fellowship. It's amazing that He wants our fellowship with me and you. He does, though. That's why He wants us to imitate Him. And here's the clincher. To be useful to Him, we must be holy. Second Timothy 2.21, Paul writes to Timothy these words. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, if he repents from his former lusts, which he committed in his ignorance, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, listen to what the Scripture says, he shall be a vessel for honor. Now, let me ask the obvious, what are vessels for? Just to sit and adorn a living room? What is a vessel for? It's to contain, right? Contain. We are, by God's own description in the book of 2 Corinthians, we are such vessels. And we have this great gift of God by His Spirit living in us. We may be cracked pots, as it were, cracked vessels. We're transparent. But you know what comes through those cracks? The glory of God. The holiness of God. And He speaks and reaches out and changes people's lives. Paul goes on to write after having said, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. Guess what the next word is? Sanctified. Made holy. Useful to the Master. Prepared for every good work. Therefore, let us flee youthful lusts and let us pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Here's something to remember. If you want to be holy, you need to hang around with people who are holy. Not to the exclusion of people who don't know Jesus. We are to interact. We're to love people who know Christ. But it's more than coincidental that when Jesus would send people out 
to share himself with other people, the gospel. Did he ever send anybody out alone? No. He sent a person out with another person for protection, for sure, but for accountability. Find some people who have this heart to grow in holiness. Say, hey, let's grow together. Could be your wife, could be your husband, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. Could be your neighbor who knows Jesus. Could be a member of the church. Find somebody and grow in holiness. That's the command. You're not walking in the Spirit, nor am I, if we're not obeying this command. Do you understand this is binding on you? And binding on me? How does this transformation take place? Well, we've already said it by God's Spirit. This is how it takes place. We've seen this in verse 2 where the Bible says that we are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The setting apart work of the Spirit. In Ezekiel 36:27, the Bible says that God speaks, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. So we're back to where we began. How is this possible? The Spirit of God's in us. And what does He do? He moves us. He's the one who motivates us. When I'm led to pray, it's He who's doing it. When I'm led to read my Bible, it's He who's doing it. When I'm led to witness, it's He who is putting that motivation, that thought in my mind. And I can act on that impulse. And I should act on it because it's His work in my life. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, this is what the Scripture says. God speaks. He says this. Consecrate yourselves. That means sanctify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then He says this. Listen carefully. Keep my decrees and follow them. The same words that Ezekiel reports God saying to us in the New Covenant. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to do what? Follow my decrees. Holy Spirit is the one who moves us and empowers us. We're not left to our own ingenuity nor our own devices to be this kind of person, a holy person. It's He in us who moves us in this direction. As we gird up our minds for action, as we're sober, we're level-headed, we're people who think His thoughts after Him, and those thoughts become part of who we are, and God motivates us. This calls for us a yielding to the Spirit so that we can enter a lifestyle of holy conduct. God's holiness results in holy deeds flowing from His holy nature within us. We're participants. We have to consecrate ourselves. And what He says, be holy. But the good news, He concludes, I didn't finish Leviticus 20, verse 8. I am the Lord who sets you apart to be holy. He's the one working this in us. He's the one who's motivating, empowering. He's the one who's sanctifying us. So we must get in on what He wants for us and therefore fulfill our purpose. So God's Spirit, and what does God's Spirit use? Well, I know you could answer this question already if you've been listening. God's Word. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. In this passage, verse 16 is introduced by a familiar formula used by the Bible writers. It is written. Written once in time for eternity. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We can stand on the word of God. We can listen to what he has to say and we can bank on him to be sure that he will give us direction and power for the renewal of our minds. Our thoughts determine those things which we love, really, don't they? When you have some free time and you don't have to think about work or making a decision related to your family or anything else, where does your mind go? Well, I'm not going to tell you where mine goes. It needs to go to the Lord more often, for sure. But as we grow in holiness, we will see ourselves having our affections changed. The things that we really have looked for that have proved empty to bring fulfillment to us, they will gradually recede in our consciousness. And if they do come up in our thinking, they won't have the impact or influence on us that they have had before. Why? Because we've redirected our focus, haven't we? And put our focus where it belongs. We need to renew our minds. Paul was on the same page with Peter because they were on the same page, the Holy Spirit's page. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their works. In Romans 12, I'm sure verse 2 has come to some of your minds already today, where it says, Do not be conformed to this world. Same word that's used by Peter in this passage about our not going back to conformity to our pre-Christian lifestyles. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The renewing of my mind. In Genesis, Exodus rather, 39, verse 30, there's a description of the last piece of clothing that the high priest was supposed to have made for him so that he would be properly attired when he did his work as the high priest of Israel. It was a turban, a headdress. And Moses was given directions to have a plate with these words engraved on it. Holy to the Lord, placed on this turban. Now, why do you suppose that was placed there and not over the heart or some other place? Why was it placed on the turban? It's because the battle is won where, men, women? Where is it won? It's right here. It's in our minds. We're to love the Lord our God with all our minds. And one of the ways we do that is we meditate on His Word day and night. We become men and women who saturate our lives with the Word of God. And there's great opportunity to grow in holiness when we do that. Otherwise, there's no hope because we're barking up the wrong tree. Suppose in the morning when you awaken and you get the cobwebs out, however long it takes you to do that, and whatever method you may need to employ to get that. Every morning I wake up and I say, what morning is this? It kind of goes to my mind, what is today? Do you all ever have that thought when you wake up? It's probably paranoia. I'm thinking it's Sunday and I forgot it is. It's pretty bad. But what would happen if you said in the morning to the Lord, Lord, today I want to yield my mind to you. And please fill my mind with your thoughts today. I know, Lord, that's going to take my looking in your word and being taught by your spirit, but I'm asking you, Lord. Also, Lord, I want to yield my passions to you today. I want you to be my passion, Lord. I want you to be, not that I can't enjoy things that 
you've given me to enjoy. I'm not t- I know you don't want to do that. You want to use those things as means of ministry to other people who like to do those things, and I like them, and we can do them together, and you can use me to be salt and light in their lives. But Lord, I'm yielding my passions to you today. And Lord, I'm yielding my eyes to you, and my mouth to you, and my ears to you, and my hands, my feet. I'm yielding myself to you, Lord. That's music in God's ears. He wants that for you and me so that we can accomplish His purpose and become holy as He is holy and be useful to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this day. It's a great day to worship You. We've been blessed in many ways during this time we've shared together. We ask, Lord, I ask for all of us, myself at the top of the list, Lord, that we would not have this truth escape us And then we would take to heart this command to be holy as you are holy. Thank you, Lord. Would you just say to the Lord in your own heart that you want to yield yourself to Him right now? Give yourself to Him in a new way. Say, Lord, I want to be holy. I'm scared, Lord. I'm scared I can't live up to it. But Lord, I'm trusting you to be yourself in me empowering me for this as I trust in you moment by moment. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you prayed that prayer. It's a great prayer. If in a minute God answered it, so walk in it. God bless you.